All right, you can turn in your Bibles. We have uh, a text today, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at just a handful of verses, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Uh, And it's been uh, fun to have Ben with us the last few days, and he's going to be here uh, a good portion of this upcoming week as well before heading back to England. But I've gotten to listen in on some conversations that he's had with other people, and I've gotten to ask him some questions as well in England and here, uh, even in things of like how we speak. Speak. Uh, there's been there's a running joke or not a joke, but I couldn't find who it was really attributed to who originally said it. But they said that uh, England and the United States uh, are essentially two nations divided by a common language. Some of you have heard that uh, little quip before. Uh, and there's truth to that. I've I've had to learn some of what he means when he says things. Or he, I mean, he probably knows what we mean because he's lived here in the states for a few years before. Uh, like for example, when he says cheers. That means thanks, typically. Uh, that, that is what cheers means to him. Uh, but one word, I've, I've asked him and I've heard several people ask him about what English, proper English, people mean when they say this word. Uh, is the word bloody? And I'm going to be careful because I know you're from the UK. You mean different things than what we mean when we say bloody. Uh, if you watch British shows, things like that, you'll hear the word bloody used sometimes. I said, Ben, do, what does that mean? Like what, like what level of seriousness of a word is that? And I thought it was funny. He said, well, I wouldn't say it in front of my grandma. That's what it, and so that just alone tells you when somebody says bloody in England, they mean something very different from which we mean here. We just mean bloody, like physically bloody. They use it as a much broader term that I don't need to elaborate on. Uh, but this text that we're coming to today, not in the English sense, British sense, but in the American sense, is a bloody passage. It is one that talks about blood uh, very clearly, repeatedly, four times in four verses. You'll see the word blood or bloody when I read it here in just a moment. Uh, that uh, this, this is an important part of this small kind of central section of the book of Hebrews. It's talking about the blood of Jesus. And just true confession, when it comes to actual blood, I am very squeamish. I don't know about some of you. Uh, I do not do well. If our children have injuries, I try to be a man, but I often have my wife uh, tend to them. I just do not do well. I try my best, uh, but I get squeamish. Uh, I don't even really like to talk about blood. Uh, It's not even a fun, not that it's ever fun, but I don't enjoy talking about it. It can even have an effect on me to even talk about it. Uh, But there is one great exception to that, uh, and that is the blood of Jesus. And that's what this text is going to point us to. And with that subject, the blood of Jesus, I'm not squeamish about it. I'm, actually, I'm not uh, averse to talking about it. I'm actually eager to talk about it. And I'm thankful that this text points us to it and repeatedly points us back to it. Because apart from the blood of Jesus, I would be racked with guilt. Apart from the blood of Jesus, I would be under the judgment of God. Apart from the blood of Jesus, I would have no power to combat sin in my life. And those things are true of you as well. Uh, that, that you would be uh, racked with guilt. That you would be under the judgment of God. That you would be powerless against sin. And so whether you are squeamish or not, I want to encourage you uh, to listen into this text. And to not close your ears when it talks about blood and just think that that's some grotesque thing. But to, to know the eagerness that we need to have to hear the blood of Jesus. And its importance, its significance that is infinite and eternal 
for us. And so even if you're squeamish, I'd encourage you to listen in. Real brief uh, context of this text before I read it. This is part of the book of Hebrews. This is a, a letter, maybe even a written sermon that was sent, that was given to really early Christians who were Jews ethnically. Now they had grown up hearing the, what we call the Old Testament, being under the law of Moses, but they were being tempted to walk away from that as suffering came, as opposition came. They were tempted to go back to those old rituals, to go back to lean on those and not hold fast to Jesus alone. And the authors again and again trying to correct that, trying to steer them back to Jesus, to stay on the ship of Christ, as we've used that metaphor a few times. Um, most immediately, what he's been talking about leading right up to this is he's been, whoever wrote this, has been contrasting the old covenant uh, that was established at Mount Sinai with the new covenant that was established at the cross. Uh, he's been contrasting those, and he's been talking even about the earthly tabernacle, that tent that God had them set up, where there was this holy place and the most holy place. And he's tried, been trying to help them see that was just a picture of sorts, a shadow of the reality of heaven uh, itself and our need to, and our inability to approach God there. Uh, and so he's been discussing that. He ended, if you were here last Sunday, you saw at the end of uh, verse 10, he had been talking about the old covenant and how actually in verse 9 and 10, about how those sacrifices there that were made there at the tabernacle of animals, he had said, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We talked about that a lot last Sunday, that the old covenant and all the sacrifices repeated again and again could do nothing to touch the conscience, could do nothing to actually atone for sin. But now he's going to turn the page, uh, and in verse 11, he's going to say, what can cleanse the conscience? And I gave you a spoiler alert last week that it's the blood of Jesus that can cleanse the conscience. But I want you to hear it from God's word. So I'm going to read Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, and then we'll, we'll walk back through this short text together. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Uh, the author, whoever he was, continued under the inspiration of the Spirit writing this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctifieth for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize this text in just two statements that, about what the blood of Christ does uh, in our life, what it can do, what it does do in our lives. And I would summarize this text this way, that Christ's blood, two things, cleanses our conscience and compels our service. That it cleanses our conscience and it's what compels our service of God. It does both of those things. And I think this text, especially the last phrasing of it, tells us exactly that. Uh, cleanses our conscience, compels our service. So I just want to take some time to explore both of those. Uh, what I mean by those, what I think this author means by those, because they have great significance for each and every one of us. Because we all have a conscience and we're all called to serve God. And this text tells us about both of those things. Uh, so first, there's this idea that Christ's blood is what actually 
actually cleanses our conscience. I want to explain briefly what he's talking about in verse 11 and 12. I already alluded to this a little bit. Uh, But you can see even in verse 11, and the author's been saying this again and again in all sorts of different ways, he's indicating that Jesus is a different and better kind of priest than the Levitical priests uh, of the Old Covenant. He, He says that Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. That's kind of an ambiguous term. Don't have time to explain. But he's saying that, that Jesus is this better priest. He's not like those priests of the old covenant. And then he says a little bit again, and he, he, you'll see he repeats a lot of things. Uh, as if, if you were to read a transcript of a sermon I wrote or I spoke, it would be repetitive, right? And when you read it again and again, week by week, there's going to be repetition in it. But he's reminding them again uh, that the earthly tabernacle, that tent where God God dwelled and that priest could go in once a year into that holy of holies and come back out, that that is a copy, that's a shadow of the heavenly things. And so he's contrasting in verse 11 and 12 that these earthly priests, they had entered into an actual physical tent, uh, the the tent that we call the tabernacle. That's where they would enter. But he says Jesus has now, the ascended Jesus, has gone through the greater and more perfect tent. And then he's saying that it's not even a tent that's part of creation. He's gone into the heavenly places. He's gone to where God the Father dwells. That is where Jesus has gone. That uh, is a superior priesthood. (laughs) That he's not just gone in a physical tent on earth, but he's gone into heaven itself. But he also contrasts the means by which those priests were allowed to go into their places, right? The earthly priests, they were allowed to uh, go into that tent, he says in verse 12, by the means of the blood of goats and calves. That was what gave them allowance by God and his law to go into that holy place. And what he's referring to there is the day of atonement uh, that would have happened once a year. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. Uh, but what, what would happen there, this is a quick summary, the, the priest would have to offer a bull uh, for his own sin. And then he would have to offer a goat or multiple goats for the sins of the people, the collective sins of the community. And he would have to bring the blood from those sacrifices to the altar of incense and then to even the mercy seat that was inside the Holy of Holies. That was what allowed, he couldn't just walk in there on his own. He had to have that blood of those sacrifices of those animals. That was how he was allowed. That was the means by which he was allowed to go into that earthly tent. What this author is saying here about Jesus who's gone into the heavenlies, who's gone uh, outside even of creation itself to go to be with God, he says that he has entered by his own blood, right? That the, he, the way that he was granted access to the holy places, in verse 12 he says, uh, is that he came by means of his own blood, That he didn't bring the blood of an animal and think that that was sufficient to somehow, as he had taken on the sins of God's people, to think that an animal sacrifice could somehow get him to be able to return to heaven. He knew there was a blood of a pure sacrifice of himself that would have to be offered. And so he's contrasted uh, where they entered by what means they entered, and even what effect their entering has, and the effect that those uh, sacrifices even have, uh, those priests would have to enter in again and again and again. At best, those priests were securing another year. 
right? Until 365 days later, another priest maybe, or maybe that same one would have to offer those sacrifices again. They were, so they were buying a time, essentially. They were buying another year of God being in the camp. But what he says at the end of verse 12 is that Jesus has secured an eternal redemption, that he has gained access to the heavenlies for God's people once and for all. He's gone there once for all. He's gained access for God's people once for all. And so that's what he's talking about in verse 11 and 12, and he'll come back around to those again uh, in the letter. But as he gets into verse 13 and 14, he's going to come back around to this subject of the conscience. He had just said in last week's text that those old sacrifices could not perfect the conscience. They couldn't touch the inner world of the person. But as he gets into verses 13 and 14, he's doing this contrasting again of two different kinds of purification. Earthly purification of the body and then purification of the conscience, of the internal world of the person. And so he talks first in 13 about the the purification of the flesh. That's what the old covenant would do at best, was that it was providing some sort of purifying of the physical body to allow them to stay near to the tabernacle or maybe even to go into the tabernacle. And he talks about the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and bulls, and then the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. That's a strange statement. We'll come around to that uh, in just a minute. Um, But those were sacrifices that he had said back in verse 10 only dealt with the body, only dealt with the outward uh, physical bodies, physical spaces of God's people. They didn't touch the inner person. And throughout time, even since the days of Moses, even before Jesus had come, even before this was written, God's people had started to realize, if you pay attention in reading through the prophets and reading through the Psalms, they had started to realize that the blood of these animals doesn't actually affect forgiveness. That it doesn't actually bring about a purification of them as a person. That it doesn't actually bring forgiveness in the eternal sense that those sacrifices don't actually appease their conscience. Read Psalm 51. David makes it very clear uh, that he knows sacrifices aren't ultimately what God desires, but he wants a heart that's changed. He wants an internal world that's changed. And they had started to know that these sacrifices don't work in that way. They, they, They don't get into the inner person. They don't change the heart. They don't clear the conscience. But this author of this text ends and tells these people the good news and reminds them of the good news that their conscience can be purified. That they don't just have to live in this perpetual state of depending on animals that they know can't actually bring forgiveness. That they actually have a place they can turn with their guilt. They actually have a place they can turn with their their guilty conscience. And he lands there in verse 14. Because he's saying if those earthly sacrifices purified the flesh, verse 14 he says, How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works? To serve the living God. So he's saying the blood of Christ alone, that's the only thing that can actually purify the guilty human conscience, whether it's yours or mine or whoever wrote this or whoever it was written to. The only thing that can purify the conscience, the guilty human conscience, and we saw that last week, is the blood of Jesus. But hear this our conscience can only actually truly be clear, truly be cleansed. If God's wrath for our sin has actually been satisfied, right? That is the only way you can have a clear conscience is if you know the one you have offended has fully once and for all dealt with your sin and your offense against him and judged it completely. 
That is the only pathway to a clear conscience. Because if you know your record of sin and you don't know yet whether God has actually dealt with it, then you are going to have a guilty conscience that remains. You're going to have this, this just feeling you cannot shake of your guilt and maybe God's going to lord this over me and I think he's forgiving, I think he's merciful, but I don't know. Like maybe he's going to just crush me in the end. There's going to be this agonizing reality unless you know In your heart of hearts, God's wrath has fully been laid out on someone else for my sin. That is the only pathway to have a clear conscience, to know my record has been cleared. Like I am good with the one that I've offended, is if you know it has been dealt with. We don't want our consciences, please do not let the clearness of your conscience just be based on wishful thinking or what you hope God is like. Or what you hope God will do when you face him at judgment day. That is not a source of a clear conscience. You may be able to trick yourself and convince yourself into having a calmer conscience, but you know your guilt. And you know you've offended a holy God. You have to have some proof, some evidence. God's actually dealt with it. God has actually known it, fully dealt with it. And praise God, that is exactly what the blood of Christ demonstrates to us and for us. That God has seen our sin. God has laid it upon Christ. God has judged it fully and completely. Notice some of the language that the author uses here. He says, uh, first, it, these are all in verse 14. It says that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. That's important. That Jesus, to to approach God on our behalf and to deal with our sin that was laid on him, didn't just lay his hand on an animal like all the priests before him had and say, here, like I'm going to transfer their sins to this animal and I'm going to kill it. He had to offer himself, a human being, for you to be forgiven of sin and your sin to be dealt with and my sin to be dealt with, an animal would not suffice. The animal cannot stand in for a human being. It had to be a human who would have be sacrificed. And Jesus, this text says, offered himself as that sacrifice. And when it says that he came by means of his blood, back in verse 12, some people try to play this game. Well, blood means life. Like, it's the source of life. It's what's going through our veins. Like, Jesus approached God because of his life and the, the good that he did in life. That is clear as day, not what this text is talking about. When it says he offered himself, he's referencing the killing of animals. That is what, the the blood described here is a bloody death. It's not just talking about the life Jesus lived for you, although that is important, but he is pointing most squarely to the cross. Where when Jesus offered himself, he offered his very life. He laid his life down as a substitute for you, letting God the Father judge him in our place. That is what he was doing in the offering of himself and the bringing of his blood. And it says that he offered himself, verse 14, without blemish to God. That is important. Because if you want a fellow sinner to stand in your place, you say, hey, I have this willing person. They are so wonderful. They are willing to take my sin onto themselves and be judged for me. Even if you had someone willing to do that, they already deserve eternal judgment. Right? God was already going to crush them, but them being crushed by God does nothing for you, right? Like, it would do nothing for you. We needed someone who was innocent, 
someone who deserved not the, the crushing of God the Father, but the favor and blessing of God. We needed an innocent sacrifice, an innocent substitute for us. And that is exactly what Christ was and is, that he was sinless. He deserved God's favor and God's blessing, but he allowed our sin to be counted to him. He had no blemish. And side note, the testimony of God in verse 14 about what was happening at the cross, I so appreciate this. I meditated on this a good bit this week. It's wonderful because did you notice that all three members of the Trinity are talked about here? Uh, That it says, it's talking about Jesus, God the Son, saying that he offered himself without blemish. And who did he offer himself to? Not to like Pontius Pilate or somebody, right? He offered himself to God the Father, our judge. He offered himself to him. But the author says, I love this. This is mysterious to me. I don't know exactly what it means. But he says that he, Jesus offered himself to the Father through the eternal spirit. That the Holy Spirit somehow was part of empowering, enabling Jesus to faithfully go to the point of death at the cross. And empowering him to suffer even the judgment of the Father. And so the Father, Son, and Spirit are all testifying together at the cross that this sacrifice will work, that this sacrifice will actually gain eternal redemption for God's people. It's not like they're at odds, they're working together to save people like us. The Son laying down his life, the Father crushing the Son in our place, the Spirit helping the Son offer this sacrifice. They're speaking with one voice at that bloody cross to all of us. That we love you, like we are for you, have offended us, but we are buying you back. We are working together to secure your redemption. And so we have proof at the cross that this sacrifice has happened and that it is effective. That it actually, the Father, Son, and Spirit testify to it together that we actually can be forgiven. We actually can have our record cleansed, our sin dealt with by the blood of Jesus at the cross. Typically, we think, and maybe this is why I get disgusted by blood, we think of blood in very negative ways, typically, right? We think, well, blood stains things if it somehow gets on a towel or on clothes. Blood ruins things. Blood scares us, right? When we see it, especially when we're younger, blood sometimes repulses us. Blood disgusts us sometimes. But the blood of Jesus, this text says, cleanses us. It is what actually makes us clean in the sight of God, is the blood of Jesus. It is not us scrubbing our conscience. It's not us doing enough right things to kind of water down the the bloody stain that's there. We cannot remove it. But Christ's blood is what actually cleanses us of our sin and thus cleanses our conscience. So I I want for a moment to, to share, what do you do, and I'll have to be brief on some of these things, what do you do when you actually feel the guilt of your conscience? when, it, when it, you're just racked with it. First, I would say, actually listen to it. Like, don't just silence it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, made this analogy. He talked about if you have watchdogs or guard dogs, how, he based this is my interpretation. He's saying, like, how dumb would it be when they start barking to kill the dog? Like, like stop barking. Like, what do you put them there for a reason, like, to warn you when there's danger coming, right? And our conscience is like God has given us a watchdog to say, you are a sinner. Like, there's danger coming to you. Be alert to it. And so when we feel conscience, we don't silence it. We don't try to just kill it. But when we feel the guilt of our sin, we take that sin and we actually confess it to God. 
We don't try to hide it like Adam and Eve did. We don't try to conceal it, pretend it's not there. We confess it to God. We acknowledge it. And then we plead the blood of Christ. Say, God, I have done this. Like, I deserve your anger. I deserve your judgment for this. But I know that you crushed Jesus, that you laid the sins of your people on him, that you punished him. Please forgive me. That is how we have, deal with our conscience, as we listen to it. Then we turn that conscience to confession, and we plead the blood of Christ. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins to God, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin you can or need to keep hidden from God if you are trusting in Christ. And so listen to your conscience, confess your sin to God, and plead the blood of Christ. There's a, a little tract that I, I like to use sometimes with kids where they summarize this response as telling God, I'm sorry, thank you, and please. Like, I'm sorry. Like, when you feel that conscience wrecked and you can, like, express sorrow of that to God, then tell him, thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Then ask him, please forgive me. Please, uh, please grant me your mercy and forgiveness for this sin. And then the last thing, as we confess that and plead the blood of Christ, and this is something we have to do again and again and again as Christians, is you have to believe God. Like when you feel your conscience pricked as a follower of Jesus and you think, man, I am such a fool. Like I have done this again. Like God must hate me. Like I must be condemned. I, and you, your conscience starts shouting to you. You have to have a clear conscience. You have to believe God's estimation of you, not Satan's and not your own. Like, if you are united with Christ, if you have placed your trust in him, God sees Christ's righteousness in you. And he remembers the cross full well, where all your sin was laid upon him. And you must to maintain and keep a clear conscience, believe God, and take God at his word. That he forgives you, that he loves you, that he sings over you, even Zephaniah says, if you are united with Christ, believe God. So Christ's blood cleanses our conscience. The other thing, though, as you get to the very end of today's text, that we see that the blood of Christ does, that it compels our service toward God, that it's what motivates us to actually serve, to actually worship God. Uh, the, the sentence doesn't end, uh, with the, even though it's wonderful news, that, that Christ's blood purifies our conscience. The sentence doesn't end there. He says it, that his blood can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is what the blood of Christ does. It cleanses our conscience, not just end of story, but it cleanses our conscience, it purifies our conscience so that we can actually serve God rightly. That is the effect that it's ultimately leading to. And so uh, I would say it this way, and hopefully this makes sense. When we think about our service of God, we must serve God from a soothed conscience, not for a soothed conscience. Like we have to, if we're trying to serve God and live for God, we're not, when we feel our conscience, we don't like do things to get a better conscience, to get a clear conscience. Like we serve God rightly only when we already have a clear conscience because of the work of Jesus. That is where proper service of God comes from. We serve him because we have a soothed conscience, not because we want a soothed conscience. 
right? We, we look to the cross, we know we're forgiven, and our service comes from there, from a secure, knowing, loving look at the cross. And I think there are many of us, as we try to live the Christian life, we try to do good works for God, but we still have this conflicted conscience inside of us. We think, God, there's no way God is actually for me. Or we're like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, I, I know God, he, he must be so frustrated with me. He must be upset with me. I, maybe it's just going to be somehow that I didn't understand this stuff, and at the end, God's going to judge me. Like, we don't have a secure, clear conscience and confidence that God loves me and is for me, that I'm fully, completely forgiven. We have this gnawing, nagging feeling in our conscience and our heart that God is still somehow out to get me. Just waiting for that other shoe to drop. And if we try to serve God while that is still true in our mind and heart, where we don't have a clear conscience, we inevitably are doing what this author calls here dead works. Like we are, these people, as they were offering sacrifices to God, they were doing good things. Like God had told them to do these things, but they were still dead works because they weren't resting on the finished work of Jesus. They were trying somehow, they knew the grace of God in the past, right? They knew God has rescued us from Egypt long ago, and God has preserved us, and God has blessed me. He's helped me, allowed me to be part of this people. But what they did not have, definite how we have, is a confidence of future favor of God. Like, because they still had the threat of blessings and curses looming over them. Uh, they, they were part of that old covenant. We, if we're united with Christ, are part of this new covenant we talked about a couple weeks ago where our iniquities are forgiven, where, where mercy is extended to us, where, where that has been gained for us once and for all. And so we can actually not just do dead works to try to preserve God's favor, to try to keep God's favor. We know God's favor has already fully, completely been given to us secured for us we have eternal redemption he says in verse 12 right and when we know that we can serve God with gladness of heart we can serve God with this clear conscience Uh, it is not honoring and pleasing to God to serve him out of a conflicted conscience that's trying to just woo him over to you or to trying to just soothe your conscience to make yourself feel better That is not honoring to the Lord. What is honoring to the Lord is looking to the cross and saying, I am forgiven, I am bought by the blood of Jesus, and I know that God already has forgiven me. Now I'm going to serve him in light of that, not to get something from him, not to secure something from him. We all know when there's people in our lives, right, even if they're smooth talking and what. We know when people are trying to get something from us, right? They're like, they, they're like trying to feel us out. They're trying to like kind of sweet talk us. We must never, ever, ever do that toward God. Like we were never intended to do that toward God. Where we, we think he's for us, but we're going to try to kind of appease him and do these things to keep him in our good graces. That is not how the dynamic of God and creatures work. That is not how the new covenant works. God grants us his favor says, now that I've shown that to you and you're securely loved by me, live for me. Don't fear my judgment. Don't worry that if you sin or when you sin, I'm going to crush you. I've already crushed Christ. Have a clear conscience that actually serves me gladly. And that's where I'm going to try to briefly explain this, this whole ashes of a heifer thing. It's fascinating to me because uh, this feels way out of place. He talks a lot about bulls and goats and, and then just randomly, it's like ashes of a heifer. 
Okay, I barely even know what a heifer is, just FYI. But uh, when he references this, he's referencing something very specific. And I don't think it's an accident that he references it right as he's about to talk about the conscience and dead works and needing to be purified of dead works. What he is alluding to when he talks about the ashes of a heifer being sprinkled on someone for cleansing, he's talking about something that we might not know a lot about back in the Old Covenant from Numbers chapter 19. You can look it up later. Um, but what there was this prescribed uh, ritual that would take place where a priest would have to take a heifer, and usually they would kill animals at the tabernacle, right, uh, at the altar there. But they would take this outside the camp, and they would kill it there, and then they would burn it down to ash, and they would put that ash in water, and then that water would be used to purify people based on when there would be certain uncleannesses, uncleanliness that would be uh, true of them. They would have to have that in certain amounts of days and things like that. They'd have to have that water sprinkled on them to restore their cleanness to be able to go back into the camp. And what is fascinating, if you read that, or I found it fascinating at least, when you read Numbers 19, the example that is used of the, clean, the uncleanliness that needs purified, uh, that needs to be dealt with, is when someone has touched a dead person. Like that's what, read Numbers 19, that's what he's describing with this ashes of a heifer is when somebody touches a dead person, now they become unclean and they need to be made clean. And the way they're made clean is through this ashes put in water that then is sprinkled on them. That's, that's how they're made clean after touching a dead person. I think I actually have this on this slide just so you can see it from Numbers 19, 13. Do we have that? Yeah, so this is just one example from that chapter in the law. It said that whoever touches a dead person the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That's why they have to stay outside of the camp. But he says, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity, that water that the heifer ashes has been put in, that water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. And so there is, if you touched a dead body and you didn't have that water sprinkled on you, you had to stay outside the camp. All that for context. When he, come back to Hebrews 9, when he's talking about that our consciences need to be purified from dead works to serve the living God, I think that is why he just referenced these heifer ashes. Uh, and this is what I mean. If you are a Christian like I am, if you are united with Christ, what is true of you is you have been made into a new man or woman. The old you was crucified with Christ, right? That one who was trying to maybe appease God with good works or maybe you were just running uh, absolutely rebellious toward him, but that old self has died, right? Gone away. You've been made into a new person. But what we are tempted to do, as, even as people who have been made new, is to go back to that old man or woman and, in a sense, touch them and try to start to live to gain God's approval again. That we go back to that old way of life, to that dead self, and it's like we touch it, and we need to be made clean. When, we're, when we go back to those old ways, when we go back to that old way of relating to God, we need to be cleansed. And we don't have to then stay outside a camp, stay away from God, and we surely do not need some heifer ashes put and water sprinkled on us to gain access to God, to return to God in repentance because we have the blood of Christ. 
Even when we go back to that old self and we go back to that dead man or woman that we used to be, we don't have to wait three days or seven days or have water put on us. We go to God and we plead the blood of Christ that was already shed for us and we are instantly able to be with him again, restored with him. We don't have to wait. So that is why I think he references these ashes of a heifer and he's saying what we have is the blood of Christ that has purified us once and for all, and we don't need to go back to being that old man or old woman. We don't need to go back to that old way of life. A couple other thoughts on this service of God that flows from a clear conscience. I think there are people, I'm confident there are people in this room who are struggling to overcome certain sins in your life, I'm not saying this is absolutely true of you, but I know this is true pastorally. There is sometimes, we do not experience freedom and actual like growth and obedience in our life until we actually settle this issue of having a clear conscience before God. Like, you will not find, I don't think, true power and freedom to overcome sin in your life until you settle this issue of the cleanness of your conscience. Like if you are still persuaded or still worried that God is out to get you, that God's wrath is looming over you, you are not going to serve him in obedience and gladness and joy. Because it's gnawing in the back of your mind, maybe this isn't all true. Maybe this is just uh, something that, that I, I've believed. Maybe it's just a hoax. Maybe it's false. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cave. I'm going to give in to this sin again. If you do not experience cleansing of conscience, you will not experience typically power over sin in your life to actually serve the living God. I would say it this way. The experience of freedom in our life actually comes from the remembrance of our forgiveness. That is where it comes from, that, that our freedom comes from knowing Christ has died for me, knowing I'm already forgiven. Charles Spurgeon said this. I, I think I've used this before, but he said, there is no motive for holiness so great as what streams from the veins of Jesus. That is what motivates you to obey us to know the price has already been paid for you. Not that you need to get God's favor, but the, the favor of God has already been gained, granted to you and for you by Christ at the cross and his blood. And the last thing I want to say about conscience. Sometimes we can, we can have a clean conscience. We can appeal to God uh, by the blood of Christ for forgiveness of our sins, and we can misuse that clean conscience to start to justify sin, to start to justify indulgence, to start to justify laziness. This text tells you that your conscience, if you're united with Christ, was purified, not end of the sentence, but it was purified so you would actually serve the living God that you actually live for him, the one who died for you, that you will not presume upon his grace, that you will not take for granted the forgiveness that he has given to you, but that you will actually, as a changed person, serve him and live for him. That is what a clean conscience should lead to, is increased obedience, not disobedience, right? Sometimes I grew up thinking this, nobody ever taught me this, but I, I used to think of what Christ gained for me as a get-out-of-hell-free card, and that's all I thought it gained me was forgiveness of my sin. But Christ's sacrifice, his blood, has bought you. You belong to him. You were bought by him to serve him, to live 
for him. That is what your, where your cleared conscience should lead. If you have a conscience that is clear but that leads you to disobedience, that is not a purified conscience. That is a seared conscience. That is a deceived conscience. And if that's how you've been using the cross of Christ, I would call you to repent of that today. And hear this text, that the blood of Christ was to enable you to serve the living God, not to run away from him, not to refuse him. The good news is that Christ's blood was shed at the cross, but blood, when it's outside of the body, I don't know what, I think it's called, it coagulates, it gets gross, right? Maybe that's why I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> There is blood in Christ's veins now, right? Like he shed blood at, his blood at the cross so that we might be forgiven, but he is alive and well right now. There is blood coursing through his veins as a human being right now, and we must remember that too. We look at the cross and we can have a clear conscience, but we look at the right hand of God the Father and know Christ is alive and well, living. We, we serve the living God. That's how the text ends, right? That, that is talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, but it is talking about Christ, too. That we serve a living God, Christ who died for us but who lives for us. And as we have this clear conscience, we can live for him. We have sung a good bit about blood today. Uh, I actually was oddly encouraged that Ben chose the songs that we are going to sing, that our, our brother chose songs that clearly talk about the blood of Christ. Because if you're trying to put on airs with people, you don't sing about blood typically in our culture. You like get these like frou-frou songs or uh, like just purely emotive songs. But I'm grateful that Ben has chosen songs that are about the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. Because that's where we can find a clearness of conscience and that's where we can find this compelling reason to serve our Savior. And so we're going to sing some more about the blood of Christ. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the team to come up. Thank you all for listening a little extra, but let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the blood of Christ. The cross is gruesome on purpose. We know that. That it was not sanitary, that it was not easy, it was ugly, it was brutal. God, may we uh, look to the cross when we feel uh, the, the pricking of our conscience, when we feel the accusation of the enemy, God, may we look to the cross and find a clearness of conscience provided there. And may the blood of Christ then compel us to serve you, never to run away from you, never to defy you, but may we as securely loved sons and daughters serve you, serve the living God. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.